Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Imagine it's negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're going outside to a protest. You're doing this in the middle of a pandemic, and you're doing it to challenge a government that is notoriously repressive. That is to say, the brutal government of one Vladimir Putin. That's what happened last weekend in Russia when thousands, tens of thousands of Russians went out braving winter conditions, uh, approaching negative 60 in some places, uh, to protest the arrest of Alexei Navalny, who is the leading anti-Putin dissident in the country. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about the protest movement in Russia, which we don't think has petered out. Uh, we're going to talk about Navalny's arrest, why Putin did it, and and why all of this matters. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Good morning. Um, so it's not negative 60 in D.C., uh, which I'm very thankful for, but uh, I, it was cold enough that I didn't want to go outside and walk my dogs this morning, um, or at least I was very unpleasant doing it. But, uh, you know, if, if that's cold for me, whatever it is, I don't know, it's like a little below freezing here. Negative 60 Fahrenheit, like that's pretty hard for me to imagine. And and yet in uh, in Siberia, that was the temperature during some of the protests uh, last weekend. It just astounds me. I can't get over it. Right. Like I, I maybe because I'm a hot weather person. Right. Like the <laughs> braving that kind of temperature to make a political statement, especially one where you could get beaten up by the police for doing it. It's just wild to me. Yeah. I mean, look, I've uh, grew up in New England, so I'm used to sub zero temperatures on occasion. Uh, I would never do negative 60. Uh, so that is an insane amount of uh, of uh, like just fortitude to go out there and actually fight for what you believe in in negative 60. Like people who I've talked to have been in that cold stage. Like you really need, need to want to be out there. Um, otherwise you are, you know, it's actually super dangerous to be out there even without a pandemic. It's just actually like really bad for your body to be out in negative 60 degrees. Um, so my goodness, um, hats off to them for, for fighting for what they believe in, in, in such, in such temperatures. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think part of the bravery has to do with, you know, the, the model that Navalny himself, right? Alexei Navalny, these are, uh, he's the opposition leader that all of these demonstrators came out to support. Uh, and he just came back to Russia from Germany, where he had been recovering from being poisoned in Russia, uh, most people believe, by the regime, by the Kremlin. 
probably ordered, if not directly by Putin, then at least, you know, signed off on or allowed by him. And he, you know, was almost killed and went to Germany to get medical treatment and knew he was facing not only, you know, probably potentially another, you know, assassination attempt at some point if he comes back to Russia, but also immediate arrest. And he still came back and, you know, kind of set that model. So I think that has a lot to do with why people are willing to go out in the cold and, and you know, stand up for him. If I may, I, I know we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more, but I'm pretty sure it was definitely the Russian government, right? I don't think we need to hedge because, like, they've admitted it. Navalny got them to admit it. Um, heck, we even know where they poisoned him, through his underwear. Um, so it's a, like... It's, it's unsurprising then that there's so, so much anger because it's pretty clear that through Navalny's own actions, like he has exposed the Kremlin for what it's been doing and, and, and duped them and shown that they're actually not like the greatest um, people of all time. So let, let's back up a little bit and talk about who Navalny is to begin with, right? Because he's not some guy who just popped up in the last year or so uh, to challenge Putin. He's been fighting uh, the Putin regime for quite a few years now. Right. And a lot of his popularity came not from traditional politics, uh, you know, like holding some kind of elected office or something like that. That would be difficult and is difficult for anyone who is challenging the government directly in Russia. A lot of it came through uh, basically a more journalistic presence. Right. He's put a tremendous amount of effort into focusing on the corruption in Russia under the Putin government. Um, and exposing that through investigations, online platforms, et cetera. And that, um, it's really important, I think, to a degree that's underappreciated if you're not just paying attention to Russia and, and other sort of competitive authoritarian regimes like it, is that a significant portion of the way that they function is by distributing spoils to friendly, wealthy elites and leaders who and security force establishment people uh, who benefit from the regime and will work to enforce the sort of repression of civil society and free speech without and, and not use their wealth, power, position of influence to challenge the nature of the regime. So what Putin does is through state-owned enterprises, bending the rules, more traditional corruption, just like kickbacks and stuff like that distributes money to allies to keep them happy, distributes money to the military and intelligence services leadership to keep them happy and in line with the government, to, to buy them off, right? And Navalny has made a, a real name for himself exposing this because uh, even if you like you know, some of the things that people in the West don't like about Putin, like you like, say, his annexation of Crimea, which was broadly popular in Russia. Generally speaking, people don't like corruption, ordinary people. They don't like the rich getting wealthy by stealing money from them, essentially. And so he's turned this into the locus of the anti-Putin campaign, uh, which I think is a really, really, really smart organizing tactic. And so that that is how he's gotten um, such prominence in the anti-Putin movement to the point where he's widely understood to be the figure uniting uh, an otherwise disparate Russian opposition. That, that's right. It's important to know that you know when, when Putin first became president in 2000, he, he came with relative popularity. There was no need for this much repression. I mean, all the corruption and all that horrible stuff you just mentioned existed. But there was not much need for repression because the people hadn't really come out against him yet. He hadn't really done anything to to merit widespread anger. And the reason for that was like Russia was doing basically fine, right? I mean, that's the grand bargain in Russia is like the, the Kremlin can do what it wants, 
Putin can do what he wants or like all this stuff can go on behind the scenes. As long as the country grows, my life is better. I mean, the same sort of stuff that everyone around the world wants, like just make sure my, my pocketbook and is, 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 is stuffed and, and I have a job and, and dignity and all that, right? Then there are these protests um, in the early 2010s, 2011, if I recall, which Putin blames on, on Hillary Clinton specifically, which there's no real link there. But um, that that is part of the reason why Russia started to like be more aggressive towards the U.S. and others. And because of that, Putin was like, wait a minute, now everyone uh, hates me and I'm worried about my rule. And so what he does is like go after Crimea and um, and election interference and all this and and, and well, a whole bunch of other fun things um, to basically show like we're still powerful and do all these nationalistic things so people continue to support him. That gave Navalny an opening. I, I mention all that because you know there was always this somewhat dissatisfaction. But again, that bargain is starting to die um, because Putin is spending a lot of time on foreign interventions on all these kickbacks, on palaces, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure. Um, so Navalny has this opening to say, look, all this corruption, all of this that you accepted until now is not working. It's not working for you, um, the regular Russian. And so seeing that, you know, now you have Russia, you know, trying to kill him, doing a whole bunch of other things. And now that Putin has mismanaged the coronavirus um, spread in his country, now you're starting to see the foundations of like that grand bargain start to crumble. And so it's not a surprise in a sense um, that Navalny now has this um, platform because he's he's expressing a, a growing sentiment in Russia. Yeah, there's a great concept, um, Alex, to that point by a, a Russian political scientist that referred to Russia in the mid 2000s as a vegetarian autocracy, which I think is a hilarious phrase, but it just means that it was like relatively polite and unwilling to to use the kind of naked repression we've seen on Russian streets recently, you know, actual beating of protesters in a, in a really violent way. And a lot of that was financed by the oil price boom of the 2000s, right? Russia's a really oil-dependent economy. And when oil was really, really expensive, as those of us who were driving cars in the 2000s can remember, uh, the it was great for the Putin regime. It was really easy to distribute rewards to the population and to keep people employed and happy and so on and generally buy off the set. When that started to change, when oil prices crashed back down to earth, then the government was in a much more precarious place and saw some of these mass protest movements for reasons that were not entirely economic, but not unrelated to the economic dissatisfaction with the government and turned into a, a more carnivorous form of authoritarianism. Yeah. One of the things I think is important to note is, is the way Navalny has kind of operated. It, it doesn't just kind of rail against generalized corruption, like the idea of corruption. It, it, it's not even really you know, like these kind of vague ideological statements, but he literally, as you, you mentioned, will expose like specific members of the elite, specific oligarchs, specific, you know, members of Russia's kind of ruling elite with, you know, documents and video and, you know, all of these things showing their expensive houses and their fancy cars and all of their property. And he started out, what's really fascinating too, he started out on Live Journal. Right. He's a blogger, like old school blogger. That's just awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that. I really do. <clears throat> right. Like how many people have, you know, challenged a, a repressive government via live journal? But it's pretty great. Um, I, I don't even know what live journal is. Oh, God. Alex. Alex, are you serious? I don't know what live journal. You don't know is, what a live journal is? Oh my god! No clue. Young listeners, you can sympathize with Alex, but those of us who were on the old internet can understand. Yeah, it's basically just an old blogging platform. It was literally daily journaling. Like you could go on there and write your journal, and people could read it. And that's kind of you know started blogging. And and you know his live journal got hugely popular in Russia. And 
he was then able, you know, when YouTube became a thing, he started posting these really well-produced videos. He's got a really, you know, sharp team. And they, you know, he would get documents from inside the, the Kremlin. He would, you know, there's a lot of suspicion within the Kremlin about, you know, who is giving him this inside material and whether these are people who also want to challenge Putin and are trying to feed Navalny this information. But he would get, you know, documents and and hard evidence of this kind of corruption. And he would post it and make videos on YouTube. And that's important not just because, like, LOL Live Journal, but because, you know, he was able to get around a lot of the Russian government-controlled media space and able to use the Internet in a way that got millions and millions of people to actually be able to see the corruption that the media would hide, that, you know, the government would control. Um, and so it was really effective. And people started to see, you know, these specific individuals they knew through, you know, the media, seeing them exposed as these really corrupt officials. And it it really hit home, I think, for a lot of people. But I think if it had just stopped there, I don't think he would have been as influential. I think what happened is that for a long time, he was just kind of a gadfly, right? He was just kind of this thorn in Putin's side who was kind of obnoxious and did this stuff. But he wasn't like the biggest threat ever. But they kept arresting him and they kept sending him to jail. And he never served like, you know, long terms, but he kept getting arrested. Uh, he kept getting assaulted. Then he got poisoned this time, right? Um, and he became more and more, the more he kept having this, you know, repression from the government, the more he kept coming back out in defiance and essentially turned himself into sort of, you know, not quite a martyr, but a very much sense of, you know, bravery and trying to stand up. And that's how he's portraying it. And that's how, you know, a lot of people in the West have also portrayed him. But, you know, got to the point where, and we can talk about this later, you know, why the, the government decided at this point to actually try to take him out and try to assassinate him. But essentially, they turned him, you know, helped turn him into a much more prominent figure. You know, many more people in Russia know his name now after the poisoning than they did before. And that, to me, doesn't seem like the most strategic decision on the Kremlin's part, but it's what they did. Yeah, it's worth noting that the Russian information space is not like uh, the authoritarian model that you might imagine in a place like China, where there's like truly intense control over what people can find online. It's it's much easier for Russians to get access to Navalny's broadcast and information and so on than it would be for a similar dissident in China to get out their message on the internet. And the result is, is a more... Um, epistemically precarious Putin government than the Chinese communist regime, one in which their citizens are better able to get access to true information, to organize uh, these kinds of large-scale protests, to unite around an opposition figure. Now, again, unite is a little bit a little bit misleading here, right? Because Navalny has some some controversial views that he has stated in the past, right? Um, among other things, he has called for deportation of quote-unquote illegal immigrants um, and has portrayed himself as a fairly extreme nationalist at times, something he's walked back on recently. He's taken a sort of wishy-washy stance in the annexation of Crimea, saying it was against international law, but now that it's done, we can't undo it. That's not a verbatim quote, but it's the general gist of it. Like, And and, and allied with, with Russian nationalists who are not exactly the kind of people that a lot of Western analysts would like to see in power in Russia, but it's including like overt racist skinheads who have you know marched <laughs> in the capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's referred to some some people in in Central Asia and the Caucasus as 
cockroaches. And that, that that's what I mean by like he is not not only is he not a perfect figure, but like there's a really broad tent of the of the Russian opposition that's sort of focusing on this guy. Right. And that ranges from those horrifying figures that Jen was just talking about to like real pro-Western liberals, uh, people like Gary Kasparov, the former chess champion, who just recently wrote an op-ed about how Biden needs to pressure Russia to uh, free Navalny. Right. Like he's become a figurehead for an extremely diverse set of people from skinheads to liberal Democrats. Because of this anti-corruption focus and because the Putin government has has been strategically unwise in elevating him as this uh, to the to the level that he's been raised. Right. And that's something I don't fully understand because for a long time they seemed really uh, Jen, you were just talking about this, too. Right. They, they seem really comfortable with him being a guy who is just on the street doing things that discredited them or made them look bad. But, you know didn't challenge the fundamentals of the regime, didn't threaten to uh, to actually turn out the numbers of people that we're seeing protesting last weekend, right? which is a truly staggering amount of people across the country in all sorts of different places. Uh, so am I, am I missing something? Or did the Putin regime just make a huge mistake by arresting Navalny and trying to kill him? So this is where I think we should explain the timeline of events because we haven't done that for, for for our listeners yet, right? So let's do that here. So Navalny was poisoned in Siberia in August of last year. And it seemed like it was through a tea that he was drinking at the airport. Subsequent investigations found out it was through his underwear. I don't want to actually know why or how they did that, but that is, turns out is how they did it. Um, it turns out that the the poison was Novichok, which is a an incredibly lethal, usually lethal, chemical weapon that uh, the Soviet Union and now the Russia and now not the Russia now Russia um, has. And so it, it, it helps also point to uh, and basically they only have it right. Like they're the ones who created and, and made this nerve agent. So, yeah, when we say that, like Russia was probably behind it, that's kind of partly why. Right. Uh, so Navalny was getting treated in Russia for many good reasons. Navalny's team was like, he's probably not going to get good treatment here. So, um, with some help from a German, uh, or, you know, a human rights organization, he goes to Germany, he gets treated. It turns out Novichok was used. It turns out that he was poisoned. All, all of this was true. And so he was there. Um, and while he was there in Germany, he worked with CNN to expose, that it was true that like Kremlin operatives poisoned him. Um, he even got one of the operatives on the phone. Navalny posed as a like top level Kremlin figure. And he was just like, oh, we're doing an after action report, how it went. And the guy's like explaining the entire operation to the man he tried to kill. Um, it's an incredible thing. And, I, and we'll put it in the show notes. You should just check it out. And all this time, Navalny is saying, I'm going to return to Russia. And this was a massive threat to Putin and the Kremlin because no one does that, right? No one just openly defies what Putin wants. And Navalny, to his team and others, was basically like, look, if I stay in exile, they win, right? Because that's, other than killing me, that is what they want. They want me completely out of the picture. Because Navalny does run in presidential elections, you know, nominally against Putin. Um, and, like, that is a pretty big stance of, you know, this guy is, is impermanent. So Navalny comes back, uh, or takes a flight from Berlin to Moscow on January 17th. He is arrested immediately before customs. There's this uh, pretty moving video of him, like, trying to fight with um, officials and then he kisses his wife and she's tearing and, and then he goes away and it's a pretty heartbreaking moment. Um, and they're holding him on these old charges that say, look, 
you know, he's, he's on probation from a, from a previous embezzlement case that he denies it and there was no wrongdoing. But the reason the Russians are holding him is they're saying he did not follow the probation because he's supposed to check in with an officer every 30 days. That's really hard to do when you're in a coma after a poisoning and you're in Germany. Uh, but that's why they're holding him. And even today, Thursday, they said they're going to hold him until or for another month at least before his trial. And he, he faces three to 10 years in jail. Okay. Finally, also like two days after he's arrested, his team puts out this incredible, funny, informative video, which shows that Putin like has been using kickbacks and bribes, whatever, to build this palace and incredible area 39 times the size of Monaco for himself with an underground skating rink and a you know, movie theater and like a hookah bar with a stripper pole, all kinds of stuff. And so this is making clear to people that like, oh man, not only have they arrested Navalny, they tried to kill him, but he's using all of our hard-earned money to build himself like this insane bachelor pad. That is why people are coming out, that now it's pretty clear like the, the, the exposure of Putin for what he is, is undeniable. And so when you saw the protests, not only did they come out in negative 60 degrees, but for like the first time in a long time, they were fighting with officials, like throwing snowballs, getting into, into you know, physical altercations. And that is the shift. That is a massive shift. So it's not only just Navalny is recognizable and he's leading this whole thing. It's also the, like the, the population is changing its relationship with the Putin regime. Yeah, no, um, that's all right. And I think um, going back to the question of, you know, why did they do this now? Why did they decide to try to assassinate him, you know, and potentially risk turning him into this kind of martyr? You know, obviously, one, you know, theory is that they just, you know, figured that they would be successful and get rid of him. And therefore, this pretty influential opposition figure would be gone. And, and therefore, you know, all these kind of disparate opposition factions would no longer have someone to kind of rally around. You know, whether that was just the plain kind of basic calculation and they failed uh, and it was just a, a massive blunder is certainly possible. Uh, you know, a lot of experts have also pointed to the situation in Belarus with, you know, the kind of uprising that we saw there uh, against Lukashenko and, you know, the fact that these kind of opposition figures sort of just kind of grew up and became, you know, these massive unifying Figures and that, you know, by watching what was going on in Belarus, that Putin was like, you know, I don't want a repeat of that. I don't want, you know, that kind of thing to happen here. So, you know, maybe it's time to get rid of Navalny. Um, the, another theory, though, which I find particularly fascinating is is essentially that the idea that, you know, the Kremlin is, is monolithic, is, the, the theory is that, you know, that's a myth, essentially, and that the Kremlin and, you know, even Putin has potentially even sort of lost control and monopoly over the use of force and that, you know, other factions within the Kremlin are kind of split amongst themselves about how to deal with things and that, you know, security services that are very emboldened, um, especially in recent years, have maybe taken it upon themselves to act, assuming that they would have the authority to do so, assuming that they would have the go-ahead from Putin, but maybe without running it past everybody and getting the full sign-off. And that it could have been some kind of blunder there. So I think it's really fascinating. I don't, I don't know if we have the actual answer. Um, but regardless, I think, you know, to Alex's smart point, you know, whatever it was, the fact that they, you know, were so brazen about doing this it has really, you know, exposed Putin in a way that I don't think, you know, has happened before. And the fact that he was able, like you said, to come back and, you know, while in jail, his team publishes this video about corruption by Putin himself is really remarkable. It's, it's a very much of a, you know, finger in the eye, like you can't get rid of me. 
I'm still here and, you know, I'm still going to keep exposing you. It's, it's fairly remarkable in terms of, you know, defiance. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to try to analyze the protests themselves, right? Just, just how significant is this turnout for the future of Russian politics? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, Trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about Russian dissident Alexei Navalny and the the massive protests that his arrest on return to Russia recently have inspired uh, after the Russian government tried to assassinate him and he went abroad for treatment. I mean, we think it's the Russian government. We know pretty we have pretty strong evidence that it is, you know, but there's an allegedly in there somewhere in that statement. Anyway, uh, these protests, uh, we sort of talked about how big they are, but I don't think we've been clear on the scope. Uh, there's a recent piece in in Time that I think sort of two sentences of which really capture the nature of the thing. So, and and I quote: "Older ralliers in the protests said they hadn't taken to the streets since the collapse of the Soviet Union. By one estimate, nearly half of those who turned out on Saturday are newcomers to political activism. That's that's truly remarkable to me, right? Like these are uh, just extraordinary." protests in terms of the scope, the size, and the types of people who have been mobilized to join in them. This this sort of thing, you know, there are cycles of protest in Russia, protest and repression by the government that have happened in recent years. 
Is this something different or is this just a sort of escalation of what's been happening? I think the fact that there are protests is normal. We've seen this quite a bit for a long time in Russia. I mean, I mentioned the, the 2011 protests. I mean, there has always been this bubbling up of, of uh, counter-Putin movement. Um, and it's been growing really since the last decade. Part of the reason Putin is doing the things in Ukraine and Crimea is because he's just trying to like, whenever things go bad, whenever oil sales go down, whenever the economy sputters, he, he's like makes these movements to, to keep people happy. Uh, what has changed is what I said earlier, which is the fact that there's actual like physical altercations, even if they are snowball fights um, with police. The fact that they're not even asking for like permits to protest anymore. That they used to be a thing. Like you'd go to the city, say, hi, I'd like to be on this square and go Putin bad and they go fine. And then they just, sur- you know, the s- authorities surround them. Um, in this case, they're spontaneous and they're everywhere across Russia's 11 time zones. I mean, 100 cities, 100 cities. Um, that's incredible. Um, and, you know, the thousands of people are arrested, which is way more than Russia usually does. Um, so that's, I think, what's different is there's a there's a difference in relationship between the people and, and, and the regime and the regime and the people. And all because it's, you know, the, the brazen attempt on Navalny and his his heroism, I think, is too strong. But his bravery in coming back. And uh, the fact that they, he, you know, exposes Putin in the way that he does in this video, which I have to say, N- Navalny is a bit different than other dissidents in the fact that, like, he uses humor pretty well, um, right? Like, it, it's kind of like Stuart and um, Bassem Youssef um, and others out there that, like, he's not just saying, here are the documents, here are the interviews. Like, he's doing witty cuts in the videos and whatever and like it's engaging a new generation what's in one last point here and i think this is in the timepiece it's that you know putin has really been around since 2000 but there's a whole generation of people in russia who have known no other leader who have known uh, russia under no possible other future right they're 20 they're possibly 20 years old so when they're seeing what Navalny's exposing, when they're seeing what they're seeing from the government, they're going, maybe my future could be different. I can, ima- I can at least um, hope that things have been bad under this one guy. I'd like to see something different. And so there, there is this upswell. I think, I think this is what's, what's really the change. Um, I think that's a really good, good point on, you know, they want to see something different. And I think it's worth kind of drilling down a little bit on that, on how different Navalny would be or not as, you know, were he to be leader of Russia, we're obviously a far cry away from him becoming the leader of Russia, uh, considering he's in jail, and many analysts expect that he will be sentenced to a long jail sentence as a way to try to get rid of him. Now, whether the U.S. and and pressure from the EU and you know international pressure convinces the Putin regime to take a different tack is certainly possible, though Putin is not particularly well known for giving in to pressures from the West and and doing what the West wants, uh, you may have noticed in the history of literally all of Putin's regime. But I think it's really interesting getting back to kind of the idea of, of Navalny as this kind of unifier of this opposition. I think one of the things that's really important to understand is that, you know, in a country like Russia, where there is no real political opposition space, right, there are opposition parties that exist, but they they are essentially allowed to exist within these kind of pretty defined boundaries. Um, you know, they are allowed to kind of dissent on certain areas of policy in certain ways, but at the end of the day, they're pretty much counted on to fall in line with what the Kremlin wants. Um, it, it's not any kind of meaningful opposition. There's really no no meaningful challenge. And so when you have someone like Navalny, who is able to kind of break through that and is able to become this kind of figure that is challenging the regime, 
it makes sense that people who want something different are going to rally to him. I don't think that necessarily means that they all actually want Navalny specifically or that they, you know, even necessarily agree with his policies, with his politics, with his nationalism. Um, There are many, you know, who think he's not liberal enough and far too nationalistic and who are very deeply concerned about that. But the, the problem is that, you know, when you have a repressive regime like that, you are limited in the options of of who you can kind of rally around. And so I think what we could see is that if Navalny were to be successful in terms of kind of opening up more political space for other opposition figures, and if, you know, you were to have a system where more kind of figures and, and factions and groups were able to meaningfully break through and challenge the regime, then you would start to see, I think, a, a, a splintering, but in a positive way, a more democratic kind of move, right? The, the problem with Navalny, because of his politics and all of that, he's not the ideal, you know, somebody that the West can kind of rally around. And the fact that the West is very much you know, supportive of him as this kind of brave figure is because there's literally not really anyone else. Um, But I think, again, he's really problematic. And so I think that's one of the things that you see is that because of a repressive regime like this, there are extremely limited options. And I think that that means that you end up, and we've seen this in other countries, right? We've seen this, you know, the the U.S. and the West have a a pretty bad track record in picking who is going to be an actual reformer um, when we support people like Aung San Suu Kyi. It's exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah, like pro-democracy reformer, and she gets, you know, Nobel Peace Prizes and all of this kind of recognition, and then she actually, you know, gets some bit of power, though not complete control, and she ends up doing some pretty horrific policies toward the Rohingya and, and Muslim minorities. Um, you know, we've seen that in Syria with with Assad. You know, originally when Bashar al-Assad came to power, uh, the, the U.S. and many in the West thought that, oh, because he was Western and educated, he was going to be this, you know, liberal reformer. We've seen that with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, right? But again, it's because, you know, there are these kind of limited options um, that we don't see a more robust kind of opposition movement. And I think that's one of the problems and one of the the kind of um, the paradox of Navalny is that, you know, yes, he is someone that the West should support in the sense of, you know, not just letting Putin get away with just repressing. But at the same time, we don't want to, you know, hook our horse to him and just have him be like the star, because should he actually become the ruler of Russia. Again, very far away from that ever happening right now. But his policies may not actually be that great in terms of, you know, both in terms of Russia itself, but also in terms of relationships with the West. He's not going to be the pro-Western guy that that America or the EU really wants. I, I think that's an important point. I would just add to, to your list uh, Abiy Ahmed in, uh, in Ethiopia, right? Like, we, he also wins a Nobel Peace right, Prize. Right, yeah. Right, I mean, I just... I mean, I there can, are so many examples, yeah. Exact, no, no question. So I, I just find that, that, that is, that's so important. I talked to a member of uh, Navalny's team, uh, Vladimir Mylov, and I think it's important... To just quickly go over what he says, no, like if Navalny ever became president, which is just not likely. I think it's important to know that polls basically show Navalny having about like two percent of of Russia's of Russian support to actually lead the country. So when when people describe these protests as like pro Navalny, I actually think they're more anti-Putin, anti-corruption than they are pro Navalny. But either way, the general platform, let's say, uh, and I will do my best to to not read it, the whole list. Uh, curbing state power, right? It's all really centralized um, with Putin. 
guarantee some like social programs uh, by taking government spending away from um, subsidizing state monopolies and the military and bringing it through like issues of healthcare and whatnot, um, reform the security state and normalize relations with uh, the developed world, uh, their words, not mine. And so maybe that's what gives hope for, as you know, Jen alluded to, maybe that, that leads some people in Washington to think, oh, he might improve Moscow-Washington ties. Maybe, maybe not. I think what's clear is he's not the leader that perhaps many people have in mind. We, we've already noted for a, a little bit, I, he's pretty hardline on immigrants, particularly uh, Muslims in the Caucasus. In fact, one uh, Russian reporter told our, our colleagues over at Pod Save the World, and this astounded me, and I listened to it like three more times to make sure I heard it correctly, that Navalny is more to the far right on immigration than Putin is. Um, that if anything, Navalny is close to Trump on issues of immigration. So um, he's not the perfect person. No politician is. But th- this this whole notion of should he ever come into power, let's say, he's not going to govern in, the, in this sort of uber-democratic, liberal way. In fact, um, liberals in Russia are somewhat akin, according to this Russian reporter on the show, uh, to like right-wing libertarians in the U.S. So the, it's just what he is is, a, is an alternate. He's not like the great solution, as, as Jen alluded to. Yeah, his kind of movement uh, and the type of politician, his politics, are, are what's called uh, natsdem in, in Russia, um, basically nationalist Democrats. There's a really great paper that I was reading about his kind of political ideology and where he fits in the spectrum of domestic Russian politics. And if you ask Navalny, and you you hear a lot of journalists, especially Western journalists, ask him these questions of how can you be such a nationalist but also, you know, support liberalism? And he will consistently say, I don't understand why you think that there's there's a conflict there, right? He sees, you know, liberalism in terms of rule of law. Um, it's very much this kind of anti-corruption vision. But he also sees nationalism as fitting very much part of that. And I think that the comparison to Trump isn't that far off in some ways, right? He has also decried Russian military adventurism in places like Syria and said, look, you know, we should be spending that money at home instead of trying to intervene in other countries, which is obviously something that Trump was very big on. The idea, too, of Navalny's is that even Putin has been too, yes, there are people in Russia who think that Putin is too pro-Western, which is probably shocking to people in the West. Um, But, you know, that, that Putin has, in fact, actually caused some of the collapse of traditional Russian values, even though, again, we in the West see Putin as trying to kind of lead the the charge to restore these kind of mythical Russian kind of values. But, you know, Navalny has has called out Putin and and the elites and the regime for ignoring the plight of ethnic Russians, um, very much this kind of nationalist, ethno-nationalist kind of rhetoric. Um, But again, he doesn't see a difference if you ask him politically between, you know, he doesn't see a conflict between that and and the principles of liberalism, which is something that is hard, I think, for Western liberals, lowercase l, to really wrap their heads around. But it's very much focused on the kind of basic democratic, you know, principles of rule of law and and anti-corruption and not the kind of social liberalism uh, in terms of, you know, multiculturalism and things like that, that, that we would come to kind of think uh, of as someone who would name themselves as a liberal. I mean, obviously there are <laughs> massive points of dissimilarity with the way that we understand right-wing populism in the West, namely that right-wing populists in, in Western countries, Trump is an exemplar here, are, are tremendously corrupt in general, right? And Navalny's whole thing is that corruption saps the nation. 
uh, and weakens our, our sort of shared social bonds. And also those movements tend to be somewhat anti-democratic, whereas Navalny seems to be among various other negative qualities. This is one of his good ones. He seems to actually want there to be fair, free and fair elections, uh, may, if only because that would be the only plausible pathway for getting Putin out right now. Right, right and getting him in. <laughs> right. But who knows? Right. But the, the point is, like, getting a, a President Navalny is not, like, an immediate future concern, to put it mildly, uh, which is why I think the uh, the dynamics of the protests themselves have have overrun the divisive elements of his platform that you two were just talking about. Part of the way that you get a coalition together uh, in uh, an authoritarian country to oppose the authoritarian leadership is not just having a popular front of the authoritarian being bad and not just having a popular figure that helps galvanize abuses uh, of public trust by the government, but by developing a movement that has some momentum of its own. That is to say, protest movements that feed on the success of protest movements or the government responses to them. There's a really, really nice piece by um, a political scientist named Timothy Fry in the Washington Post recently, in the Monkey Cage, their invaluable political science section, um, where he he talks about the Russian government falling into what's called a, a repression trap. This is a pretty familiar problem in authoritarian governments where... They use force to try to break up protests. But when you do that, you make people angry. People, ordinary citizens virtually everywhere do not like seeing other ordinary citizens being beaten by the government. That is just not a popular image. Uh, and so what you do when you repress like that is that you galvanize more people towards the opposition. You make people more sympathetic to their causes, even independent of substantive ideological disagreements. Right. Like you don't have to like Alexei Navalny's immigration policy to think it is really horrible that people who support him are being beaten up in the streets. And that will make you more likely to turn out to a protest in the future. And this creates what what Fry calls a repression trap. And that means that the government is forced to employ more force to counter these growing protests that are galvanized by the use of force last time. And if they don't employ enough force to fully suppress the protest movement, murdering a lot of people, then more people are going to keep protesting and they'll never be able to out-escalate the people. And this is a, a recipe for waves of protests, maybe not necessarily regime-toppling ones, but ones that actually do threaten its stability in the long term. And it's not clear to me uh, if Putin has a plan for redirecting opposition towards these more divisive and polarizing parts of Navalny's platform or towards making himself seem more popular, given um, we've touched on this a little bit, but like a very, very poor coronavirus handling and weak economic performance right now. Like, I just don't know what the off-ramp is in terms of escalatory dynamics, other than maybe people getting bored. So far, it looks like the Putin <clears throat> kind of strategy is is actually in some ways similar to what Alex mentioned uh, at the top of the show, um, you know, back in 2011, blaming protests on Hillary Clinton and the West, he's very much, you know, the Kremlin and their spokespeople are, are literally coming out and blaming these protests and even, you know, Navalny's support and Navalny's existence in some ways on the CIA, saying that the CIA is behind this, that they are the ones organizing these protests, that they are the ones propping up Navalny to try to topple Putin, um, that he is a puppet, that Navalny is a puppet of the West. Um, you know, we've seen very much similar from other regimes, right? We see that in, in China with protests in Hong Kong, you know, trying to 
paint this as some kind of agitation from the outside from foreign interference, um, which is, you know, funny and ironic when you think about the fact that the Kremlin does actually literally do that in the U.S. as well. <laughs> you try to foment protests uh, and unrest. Um, you it's, know, the, it's the Spider-Men pointing at each other meme. Right, exactly. And not to say that the U.S. doesn't do that. And, you know, the U.S. has a long history of trying to support dissident movements, uh, whether they're great or not, in other countries to varying degrees of success and spectacular failure. But, you know, that does seem to be the playbook so far is, you know, lock him up, try to, you know, get him silenced as much as possible on the terms of the protests, you know, making it clear that these are illegal protests, uh, that, you know, if you're going to go out, you're going to be arrested, and then painting this as some sort of foreign interference and saying that it's just the West trying to meddle with great Russia, it's anti-Russian sentiment, and that you need Putin to, you know, maintain stability. Um, whether that gambit works this time around, I think obviously we'll we'll have to wait and see, but it does seem so far that that's the strategy that that's shaping up so far. For sure. And, and look, this isn't a U.S. story, but it's for that exact reason, Jen, that like a lot of American hawks on Russia smell, you know, smell blood in the water. Um, they're already pushing for the Biden administration to, you know, firmly support the small D Democrats um, in Russia to to foment more protests. I mean, it's part of this growing American foreign policy idea that uh, the U.S. should do its best to support as many, again, small D Democrats around the world. And in this case, use the momentum from the Navalny protests to continue to, to chip away at, at Putin's regime. And, you know, there's, there's certain ways they can do that right now. The U.S. is going through a Russia policy review, um, and after which you'll probably see sanctions on some Russian officials or whatever it may be. Um, but in the meantime, you did see Biden in his first call with Putin actually mention Navalny um, and mention a whole bunch of things that Trump wouldn't uh, mention. But that's a start, right? It's just to say, hey, Putin, lay off these people. Um, let them express their discontent. Um, and if you continue to crack down on them and arrest you know, roughly twice as more many people than you normally do at any other protest, then you know we'll come after you in a way. Uh, so... That's why people are calling this one of Biden's biggest tests. I don't think I'd go that far. I don't think this is this is not really about America. Um, the U.S. can help in a way, but it's it's another sign of you know this is how people are viewing this now that the one sort of solid bedrock that Putin stood on is starting to crack a little bit, and some people want him to fall through those cracks. So we're gonna leave it there. I want to thank. Our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Next time, I will try to say that in a less sing-songy way. And I will see you all <laughs> next week. <laughs>